1: podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at beyond zero emissions if you have some ideas for this show contact us at radio team at beyond dot org tonight's show is about farming we know that a lot of the greenhouse effect is caused by agriculture don't we but we must eat and so, Beyond Zero Emissions has published a land use discussion paper. It showed how we can reduce emissions from the land, the agricultural sector, and through forestry. Farmers can play a big part in drawing down emissions and building resilience in the face of a changing climate, notably a drying out in the whole south of this continent. At the launch of this uh, report, we often had Uh, A kind of an awkward moment when people raised the issue of not eating meat at all why didn't the report offer a vegan path instead of just a moderate path of cutting down the livestock herd well Beyond Zero Emissions is a middle of the road group and we didn't advise that in the discussion paper but obviously there is too much livestock in the world as we'll hear from our first speaker but um, in the second half of the show we will hear about reducing the dairy herd this is one way to diversify farming and to diversify what we eat as well but first we'll take a global tour of farmlands as seen by science writer Gaia Vince her book uh, Adventures in the Anthropocene is very comprehensive and I only spoke to her about the farmlands chapter we love talking to her by Skype she's most informed person and I hope you read her book Adventures in the Anthropocene. Adventures in the Anthropocene is a book by Gaia Vince. Last year she won the Royal Society Prize for Science Writing and you can also hear her podcasts on the BBC. She's with us by Skype from England. So welcome, Gaia, to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. We talk to people who have climate solutions and your book took you to meet many of them. Could you tell me what experiences in your science journalism led you to take off around the world?
2: Um, Well, I I was an editor at a science journal called Nature, and uh, I sent out reporters all around the world to tell me what stories were happening and and report back. And I realised that we were getting all sorts of tales from around the world, lots of papers, lots of different uh, findings by scientists, which were showing that the world was changing, it was becoming a different place, and... The one common factor through all of this was humans, was us. We were the ones changing it. And I thought that was very interesting. And I wanted to go out and, and discover for myself what, what this meant for people living um, at, at the edge of survival in, in some places and, and uh, how their world was changing.
1: Well, one factor in this Anthropocene is climate change. Now, I wonder, just in, before we start on farming, which is the main focus I want to do for tonight, but can you just tell me what do you think about the media in general? Because in Australia we seem to have a very compliant media. They don't want to frighten us too much and they just tell us isolated stories that don't connect up the dots with climate change and the action we need to take. Do you have that feeling too?
2: Um, I think... It's a particular problem in Australia, actually. Um, it's, it's not such a great problem in, in, um, Britain and in Europe. Um, and e- even in, in the States, actually, there's, there's a very, very small part of the media in the States that, um, that doesn't deal with climate change. But it's, it is, it is a significant problem in Australia. And, um, I think that's because, um, the press has been dominated by, um, well, by Murdoch and by his interests. Um, and I, I think that's a big shame because um, Australia is, is a country which is, well, it's, 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 it's already suffering incredibly under climate change. It's already massively changing just everything from the murray Darling River Basin to um, desertification through changing rainfall patterns, uh, water shortages, all sorts of things like that. So, um, uh, yeah, I, th- I think people do need to become informed and... Um, there are plenty of ways to do that. You don't need to rely on one tiny aspect. The ABC, for example, doesn't um, go along with that sort of rhetoric. No. Um, so, so it's easy. It's easy enough to um, to find that the scientific consensus is that climate change is is real. It's happening, and um, and it's quite a serious re- poses quite serious challenges to yes. humanity.
1: Well, this program is the only one dedicated to climate action. You know, in th- All the radio programs that are available. Others just do odd stories here and there as the media, as the, um, you know, the news breaks. Anyway, so we're really glad to have you to give us your expertise on, um, now farming. The chapter for listeners, this book covers, you know, many aspects of the world, forests, rivers, Gaia goes all over the world to look at various aspects of the Anthropocene but I'd like to just look at farming and uh, we, we've got this problem that farmers are expected to feed over seven billion people now and yet climate change is damaging dependable farmland all the time and one key factor is water. I'd like you to take us to some of the places where they are conserving water and preventing erosion and tell us about Mr Raj Samadia.
2: Yes. Well, um, Raj Samadhi it's, it's um, not a person, it's a village. And um, that's, that's in India, in the west of India, in in a place called Gujarat, where they are suffering severe water shortages. And and what that means is that the, the ground, the earth itself is becoming unusable through much of the year because you're getting incursion from, um, from, you're getting uh, salt water from the sea, but inland in it's also becoming um, increasingly saline and, and um, polluted from overuse of fertilizers and so on. So it's actually without having enough water to flush, flush out um, the soils and, um, and overuse of soils is, is leaving them very poor. People are having huge problems, and the monsoon patterns are changing because of climate change. Water is becoming less reliable. But in this village, they tried some really quite extraordinary experiment where they decided to they, they actually use space age technology um, to to map. The underground aquifers and uh, the routes to them, and what they did was they started um, channeling out very old uh, drainage patterns and, and also um, forming new ones, and they they made access to um, to to water storage that was underground, but also um, created a large reservoir essentially, and so they then implemented also these these. Uh, new types of social rules for the village, where water became incredibly p- precious and valuable, and, and rules around its use were governed very strictly, and people were only allowed to take certain amount of monsoon water from, from the, the shared pot, the shared village pot, whatever, whatever rained down was carefully channeled and carefully stored. And the results of these have been quite extraordinary. They, instead of struggling with, um, people emigrating from, em, 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 emigrating from the village because it couldn't support them, the harvests weren't enough, they now have, instead of one very poor harvest, they now have three very rich harvests. They're able to save, they're not only making enough for subsistence, to keep them um, to keep them in food they're, they're producing a surplus which they can sell and also cash crops things like cotton and so on which which are enriching the village they now have queues of people wanting to migrate to their village it's the opposite of the mm-hmm. problem they had before mm-hmm. and they're ploughing these the uh, extra funds, the profits they're making from this into all sorts of social projects. They have really um, effective schooling, uh, even the poorest of the poor in the village, the so-called untouchable caste, the Dalits. Um, these people are given houses with gardens. Um, it's, it's quite extraordinary. It's really, it was a really impressive thing to see. It was really um, very inspiring, actually
1: yes it 's the sort of story we need to hear how people can be resourceful, and you described several really resourceful people who' got it going. look another aspect of farming that I worry about is some people see the future as a move to more small holdings um, with no till methods and natural fertilizers, especially as the intensive monoculture Mega farms have polluted whole river systems you describe in China and they deplete the soil, but is this the whole story?
2: Um, well, I, I I think the opposite is happening and, um, and that that's mainly a good thing. I think small holdings, in the West, we think of farmers as um, people who have a certain occupation, they have a large plot of land and and, um, and they're either tenant farmers or, or they own the land themselves and they work on this enormous plot either um, uh, to produce crops or, or animal husbandry. That's not the case in most of the developing world. Most people have their little gardens, and when I say gardens, they have um, they have crops that they are growing in addition to their day jobs most families have some, they have cassava in Africa or they have um, a little bit of rice or they have vegetables or they, they have some form, they produce their own food in some way, as in addition to their other jobs, and that's not going to change, I think, where we were having a huge move towards urbanization, <clears throat> the biggest migration that humans have ever known, and people are moving to the cities, but in a lot of the developing world, they are somehow maintaining these gardens, and they're, they're very useful, because in times of need, it's great to have your own little bit of produce and that's much more effective in the tropical belt than it is say in northern latitudes or, or southern latitudes. I mean um, the western cities as we know it are not really conducive to that. You might have a, a small veranda but um, you you might not have the facilities to grow your no. own food, and it's much quicker and cheaper to buy it elsewhere. But what? Will you, so I think that it, will continue, but but we will be we will be moving towards much more efficient farming. I mean that these small gardens they they can't they can't produce enough food um, efficiently enough um, for a population of more than seven billion, which mm. is what we have at the moment.
1: Well, what about this intensive monoculture though? That is so depleting of the soil. How do you see the future uh, of farming? you know, with such sort of um, damaging farming?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, monocultures, that's that's the way we've gone um, throughout our history. We're going more and more towards monocultures and it is damaging, Um um there's plenty of what we do with farming is damaging and we are having to look at alternatives um diversity is is one thing that scientists and and um and farmers around the world are already looking into creating new varieties creating new strains because the problem with a monoculture is that if it's hit by a virus or a parasite or a bacterium you can wipe out an enormous percentage of the world's food um I think it's something that like 12 or, or even less. Um, the, the world depends on 12 or even fewer um, crops for all of its cereals. Mm. Um, and that's, that's quite amazing, really, if you <laughs> yeah. think about it.
1: What about new foods? In your futuristic final chapter, you know, you describe a future where your son is there, now an old man, Um, eating sausages made from I think insects and algae and you write about things like improved photosynthesis and golden rice and dry land crops. So how could we eat differently to put less of a strain on the earth?
2: Well, yeah, these are all things these are all not completely sci fi ideas. I mean scientists are looking at, for example, getting perennials rather than annuals because um that's that would be much more efficient. It means you don't have to keep digging everything up and replanting it. You know, if the same crop provides um, cereals or fruits for you every year, that's very useful. Um yeah moving away from uh the sources of protein that we rely on at the moment things like beef and um other meats they're very um very wasteful of water very wasteful of land um and land is at a premium we already use 40% of the world's land surface just to um just to make our food and um, if we're going to increase that you know what what are we going to use like forests um other other wild parts of, of the planet, and that's a big shame, isn't it? So, um, so yeah, I look at things like, um, insect meat, which is, I mean, people eat insects, they eat insects in Australia, you know, the mm. indigenous community eat them, but not just the indigenous community, um, Asian immigrants, some of them will eat, um, uh things like uh, crickets deep fried they're very delicious actually and that's a very efficient way of getting protein um and it's very nutritious as well so um, i think we will see a move towards that definitely um boosting photosynthesis um that's i mean this can be done in different ways Uh, one way is to change from the type of crop um the way that Photosynthesis is done for some of our crops is, is so-called C3, and the way it's done for other crops is C4. And, and moving to a more efficient way of doing it, which should be possible with a bit of genetic tweaking, um, should should make um, crops much more efficient and, and mean that from the same amount of land and the same amount of water and the same amount of soil, we can get uh, more uh, plant for <laughs> for for the for, for the yeah. same, which is, which is great. And, um yeah, the idea of golden rice and golden peanuts and golden these these, these things are, this is to do with um tackling malnutrition, so at the moment um, at the moment our crops we, in order to get the best diet possible, we need a wide, we need to eat a wide variety of plants and nuts and pulses and meats and fish and so on to get all these different things but if we 're talking about getting the most efficiency and and a lot of people around the world don't have access to all this. You know, they might subsist on something very basic like a tuber or a cassava or um, or corn or something like that, because, you know, they're very poor. Um, the idea is to to essentially pack these core staple, very, very. Um, Uh, Very reliable plants. These plants um, that can grow in arid conditions that don't mind a bit of drought and don't mind a bit of flooding, and uh, they can grow in these conditions. But they're packed full of new nutrients that you wouldn't get. That you, you know, things, vitamins. Vitamin A, for example, is in golden rice, Mm. and that's essential to stop children and adults going blind. So, so um, you know, if we can, if we can help. Um, these foods become become more nutritious, that goes a long way to tackling malnutrition among the world 's poorest people
1: right well there's a lot of contest over the land um you know should uh, really regarding biofuels and this pops up as an answer in many discussions about boosting intermittent energy you know with um biofuels it 's also important for fueling cars in some people's minds. But while the rich world fuels its cars, India suffers malnutrition. So what do you think is the best balance regarding biofuels?
2: Well, yes, I mean, the uh, growing biofuels instead of growing food crops is, um, is clearly not a good idea where people um, are hungry um, or suffering malnutrition. However, there are other ways of making biofuels. You can make it. You can make them from the waste parts of a plant that you can't eat. So, say the stalks and the stems. And there's a lot of work going into doing that. That's sort of so-called cellulosic ethanol, um, and using generally our waste um, to make to make it work for us, to make it into fuels, or or to give it to animal for feed, or or, or, or to give it to um, bacteria that can feed and then produce ethanol that way um there, there are various various ways of doing that that are less damaging um there was a an enthusiasm um uh, about 10 years ago and it's, it's still it, it still pervades in some countries where growing growing biofuels growing plants essentially just to be fuels was um very profitable and um, has has led to all kinds of problems pushing up prices of food elsewhere um cutting down of rainforests um, it's been very damaging and i think now we are waking up to this and moving away and most countries have, have now done that but there are some that lag behind yes and these are some of the most vulnerable places like brazil for example it's it's really quite worrying
1: we've had recently a great heat fires in indonesia caused by the
2: palm yeah that's that's Mm. a a very good example Mm. of um a very damaging crop um, which is which is ruining not just forests but the atmosphere but um um the last remaining populations of orangutans the great our great ape cousins Uh, it's very it's it's very it's heartbreaking
1: Well, look, we published, Beyond Zero published a land management report a year ago, and the tricky subject of methane came up in many of the discussions and forums we had about it, and apparently livestock numbers are greater than humans and wild animals put together, and their population is exploding. Um, What do you think about alternatives to meat and dairy food?
2: Well, yeah i mean um I've already suggested um insects, I think they are they are fantastic um yeah cows. Their burps are a a huge problem. Actually, there's a lot of research going on in in Australia and and even more in New Zealand into this very problem. I think they have looked at putting some of the bacteria from um, kangaroos into the stomachs of cows because uh, kangaroos don't have this problem. They don't have this. um, It's to do with the the digestive system of a cow. So there's ways of, of solving, well, perhaps solving that problem in that way. But um, ultimately, cow using cows for me is an incredibly inefficient way of fueling our bodies. And uh, we should start to move away from that because as people um, in countries where they don't traditionally use this, Um, as food start to aspire to use this as food um, we're going to run into enormous problems we're already having problems with this um, and the the sooner we embrace alternatives the better.
1: Okay well farmlands are contested in these various ways and in Australia they're also contested with Coal mines. And I need to tell you that just last week we had a marvellous victory where, um, the richest farmlands in Australia at the Liverpool Plains won out over the BHP Billiton Company who was, had a mining license there and the state government bought that mining license back from them after a 10 year battle. So the land is really contested. And I think in, you know, in Canada with the tar sands, the land is always contested for these various uses. But you may raise um, an issue in your book about waste and you talk about um, the waste of food that could be prevented by different infrastructure like spoilage. You know, a crop is spoiled because the roads have broken down between the the place where the food's needed and where it's grown. Could you talk a little bit about that, what an investment in infrastructure would do to prevent the waste?
2: Yeah, this is the single biggest um opportunity I think that we have um as a global population, so in the developing world, some forty percent thirty to forty percent of food is wasted uh, between the field and um, people 's plates in the in the um, in the richer world, around the same amount is wasted um between the supermarkets and um after the supermarket so 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 the problem in the in the western world is that we are um throwing away food that is perfectly good we we produce an enormous amount of food that's partly how marketing and um um consumerism works you have to have an extra you can't go to a supermarket and have just enough um and not enough choice people want you know eight different varieties of bread to choose from and the supermarkets have to provide that and of course that leads to a lot amount of waste and then we buy stuff we throw it away we even if we refrigerate it we throw it away um and that's that's a huge problem but that's also a huge opportunity you know if we could save that amount of food in some way that'd be great in the developing world where people are actually going hungry or suffering from malnutrition so they're getting enough calories but they're not getting enough um of the micronutrients and the other forms perhaps protein for example um the problem is infrastructure is terrible, so um, so for example, when I was in Uganda, uh, I was in the in the south of the country i entered I entered over the Rwandan border in the south of the country, where there was uh, rainstorms and um, it was it was a great climate for growing crops, and there were bananas and the the um, many many bananas and many other fruits and vegetables, and the farmers were actually um, they were destroying them in the field because they the there was a glut in the market and they couldn't sell them never mind that in the northeast of the country there was a famine going on and US aid was providing was helicopter was flying in um relief packages and dropping them because there wasn't enough food this is in one country um and that's because the roads are so shocking that um it takes it can take days to go a very short distance so to go, um, say, 100, 100 kilometers, it would take many hours, um, many, many hours, sometimes more than a day um, to get that far in a truck. The truck might often break down. Um, then there are issues of um, insecurity in a lot of countries um, with banditry and so on. Um, petrol, Diesel, incredibly expensive in a lot of Africa. Um, there's no refrigeration, so the food spoils before it gets to the market. Um, in the market again, it quite often will rot and because of various insecurities, people might not go to the market, the market might be burnt down and so on. So, so basically, what food, in the places where people really need the food, there are, the, the poor infrastructure is conspiring against them. That food is not getting to them in fresh condition. Um, and that, that's a huge problem. So if some 40% of food is, is lost because of bad roads, because of potholes, because of damaged trucks, because of diesel and fuel that is too expensive to drive it there, and because of no refrigeration, no storage, no safe storage facilities, no storage facilities at all often, mm. certainly not refrigerated, Um, that's a huge opportunity lost,
1: but also a huge opportunity to change things. Yes. Thank you for making it so vivid for us, Gaia. But I have just one last question. As listeners will realise, your book takes us all around the world and you have these marvellous examples that make it so clear to us what needs to be done. But the last one I want to ask you is on the interface between farmlands and wildlands. You found that Brazilian farmers were killing jaguars because they thought they were killing the cattle, but in fact the farmers have a self interest in keeping these top predators alive. Can you tell us about the benefits of biodiversity? Well, biodiversity
2: actually does work in our favour in, in a lot of in a lot of places. Um, so there's all sorts of we we, you know evolution produces ecosystems where where things are in a sort of balance and obviously this is all shifting nothing is nothing is still in nature and nothing is and evolution is continuing and so on but but things are kept in check to a certain extent um because otherwise it would be much more the system would be much more energetic than it is so so um for example in places where um where jaguars where, where jaguars and other top predators are around the um either the herbivore population is lower um uh, that's particularly true in Africa so you, and and in and in Britain for example you you get you get fewer um um of the species that eat away at the young saplings that um and allow forests to grow and forests of course support so many other um, animals and and provide shade and provide um uh, and provide all sorts of other services they keep they keep the um, the soil in place they maintain the water and so on um, but this one example which I, th- I think you might be referring to in in Brazil is um, is to do with the diseases that you can get from having too close a contact With um, other animals that are not kept in check, so things like capybara, things like rats, and so on. So if the top predator goes, then um, lower species in the sort of the hierarchy, the Mm. hierarchy of animals, Mm. um, become become much much greater. Their populations become much greater, and these carry diseases and can cause all sorts of um, problems to humans when we come in close contact. Um, with, with these creatures. So, so, really, if we are going to invade more and more wild spaces, we really need to be conscious and we need to educate ourselves on, on the dynamics of that ecosystem because we can put ourselves at much greater risk of disease. We can, we can risk the services that those ecosystems provide us. Um, if we invade a wild space, you know, um, and we disrupt it, how, is the water table going to be managed because it was managed for free quite often by the ecology that was there before. And if we get rid of that, we're going to have to um, much more expensively manage that water supply ourselves. And um, we're not normally as efficient at doing that. Um, and to my mind, I don't know where it's been, where the water has been cleaned as uh, cheaply as efficiently and um with all the other benefits that ecosystems can give us, so we need we need to we we really need to be aware of actually what nature does for us, and um, be mindful that where we get rid of it, we have to have a plan in place. And to date, we we don't often do that. We're not very we're not very good at planning, and we're not very good at the self awareness that comes with being a nature destroying <laughs> uh, species.
1: Well, thank you very much, Gaia. There's a lot more in your book, Adventures in the Anthropocene. That was science writer Gaia Vince. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Now having done a tour internationally of what the best practice is and got some ideas, we're going very local now to a conference called Rethinking Dairy. Have you considered having almond milk or soy milk? and keeping cow's milk as something really precious? We hear from a dairy farmer who has reduced her herd and diversified. Also from dairy farmers who are going broke. Reducing the climate impact of livestock means drastically reducing their numbers. So here are some well-informed people thinking their way around this very local and tricky problem.
3: What sort of piqued your interest because what we found in the report is The vast majority of people have no idea they should even be concerned about dairy cows. So could you give us a bit of insight into yourself?
4: I I was a merchant banker, and my, sorry to tell you this, but my favourite food in those days was filet mignon and lobster, a fact for which I am so profoundly ashamed today. And my experience in the slaughterhouses changed me to getting off uh, eating meat at all. Then I was on a business trip to India, and I watched as the dairyman dragged his terrified cow, who had been badly <coughs> injured in an accident with a lorry and broken her spine. He dragged her to the gates of the slaughterhouse, getting her to move by throwing chili powder into her eyes. And alongside her was her bedraggled, starving calf. And before he handed over the, the cow to the slaughterman, The bastard milked her. Uh -uh. If that doesn't change the heart of a man, I'm going to tell you nothing will. It affected me profoundly. And this was in India, a nation of Hindus and Jains who profess to worship the cow. Let's remember that India has the world's largest dairy herd. Okay? So when I came back, and I come from the bush, so... I'm going to be blunt. Not, my attention span for nonsense is two nanoseconds. I saw cows being forcibly impregnated. I saw dehorning, disbudding, induction, tail docking, lameless, mastitis. I saw bobby calves being taken away from their grieving mothers. All new to me. I didn't have a clue before that. I saw them starved, loaded onto transport trucks and taken to slaughter at the age of four days old, away from their grieving mothers. And so-called unviable calves, created for management purposes. They were killed. And I watched as someone would smash their heads in with a hammer or jump on their ribs and crush their hearts. That's how they were killed. So... This is what made me decide to look into the dairy industry in great depth, and um, I know it's going to be a very difficult task, because, lo- like, I'm going to speak like a merchant banker now. There are big barriers to every industry to get into the industry, but there are also big exit barriers. So I, I always cut the farmers a lot of slack, because they've got a lot invested in there, and we need to make the tr- transition away more palatable. And that's part of what I'd like... If I get, the, if I get asked the question, I'll talk about. Uh, and uh, perhaps I will. So that's what brought me to the, to the dairy industry, amongst other things.
3: Well, you've left me no choice. I simply must ask, what would you see as being then a transition period or transition process for dairy farmers? It takes
4: the, the consumer. If, we, if, if farmers generally... And, and please remember, dairy is... The other side of the coin of the meat industry—they're both inextricably tied together. Okay, so any criticisms we make of the dairy industry, we could make with equal force against the meat industry. Let's not just pick on dairy for that purpose. Um, We have great resources here in Australia. We now know with absolute certainty that livestock causes more devastation than any other force vector in the environment. Uh, Livestock releases more greenhouse gas emissions than all of transport put together. Cars, trains, buses, ships, a lot. By 2048, all our fisheries are going to be dead, poisoned by the runoff from our agricultural industries into the oceans. And we've got lots of land, good weather, good systems. We can be the food bowl of the world. And I'm going to tell you that farmers actually are the ones with the most to gain. Farming won't end. It would boom. Boom. Only the product line will change. Farmers will make so much money they wouldn't even bother counting it, and I'll be the first to congratulate them. New industries would emerge and flourish. Health insurance premiums would plummet. Hospital waiting lists would disappear. Hell, we'd be so healthy, we'd have to shoot someone just to start a cemetery. <laughs> so, and, if you, and At some stage, someone's going to talk about the effect of dairy on human health. I just noticed there's a man in the audience, a gentleman, who is probably one of the world's most renowned authorities on human health um, and dairy. His name is Mark You and he's somewhere here. If anyone wants to ask... There he's standing there. Um, if anyone wants to ask a question, a genuine interesting question, please talk to him or maybe a Q&A. Mark and say a few words as well. There you are.
3: Well, that's very... So, Vicky, as as a dairy farmer who initially started on a conventional dairy farm, the kind of farms that we were talking about in the report, how do you find... um, How has the transition been, I should say, from a conventional farm to the operation system you have now? And do you see that being as potentially the industry norm? And would there potentially be a transition completely away from that again? What are your thoughts on that?
5: We, um, we've, we've, our farm originally um, we've got 600 acres in total, um, which originally milked 800 cows. Um, we've we've cut that down to um, or a milking about 120 cows um, to make room for you know running the extra stock. But, but I, I think I actually think farmers would embrace what you're saying. I think they've had a gutful of the industry, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. It, um, it, it's oh gosh, I mean it, it eats at the, it's, it's. I mean 98% of the farms in Australia are family-owned. The reason that people are drinking milk is because they to live living on slave labour. Farmers are basically enslaved. Um, in fact, they're not they're worse than slaves because they're actually going into debt to produce milk, and that's how the industry is surviving. The dollar a litre of milk—it's coming at a cost. Um, the cost to the calves, to the cows, um, and to people's lives. We lose one farm every four days. You know, and 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 the, the supermarkets can sit there and these big. Factories can sit there and, and, and make contracts with, with coals and woolies for 10 years to supply them with a with dollar a litre of milk. milk. How, how can that be sustained? I think farmers, if you came up with a solution, I think they'd embrace it. Well,
4: so, can I just yeah. add one two sentences? <coughs> I used to act for one of Australia's truly great politicians. <laughs> Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? <laughs> He was, a president. he was the leader of the National Party years ago Wonderful, I think he's still alive uh, Peter Nixon and he said something to me he was a deputy prime minister as well he was a client of mine and uh, he once said Phil you've got to understand that farmers are actually very smart they've got nothing to do all day but sit on the, tra- on the tractor and think and that's true they, they are smart and they will respond well if, they, if they're handled correctly um, I have a lot of, lot of faith in them um, and just on the fact of numbers, we're now entering a new kind of paradigm with climate change. And regardless of what Tony Abbott tells you, climate change is, is something real. I'm sorry to tell you, but it's real. Um, we've just come back recently from India. Um, you all know that livestock, is, particularly dairy, is a profligate waster of water, particularly in a country like Australia where we don't have a lot of water. And water is a new oil. Nations will soon be going to war over it. Uh, I hear one way of expressing it is to say that it takes 1,000 litres of water to produce one litre of milk. And what does a farmer get for it? Something like 50 cents a litre and about 7 cents for for, um, for solids. Now, that's not a hell of a lot of money for the amount of trouble he goes through, the damage he does to the environment, the very importantly to the damage he does to... Uh, Um, the cows and their calves, and to human health. So every industry in the world undergoes rationalization. Uh, Textiles, clothing, footwear, banking, mining, every one of them. This industry will be rationalized too. I think we should step up to the plate or to the crease and take the initiative and start the process now. Find other alternatives, like uh, different forms of milk. You know, like soy being, being one, almond milk, oat milk, uh, there are so many different kinds. And the profit margins are so much better, the wasted ratios are so much lower, and the cash flow forecasts are robust. So I see th- farmers having so many... Great. Philip? You just mentioned uh, health, which is quite an important issue. Um, in the United States, lifestyle diseases caused by the meat and dairy industry has now bankrupted that country through Medicare. They would need $8 trillion invested in Treasury bills just to pay the interest, and they have precisely zero. They could shut down every school, university, Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, Homeland Security, FBI, and CIA, and they still will not have enough free cash flow to service their long-term unfunded Medicare liabilities because of the kinds of food they eat. Now please go back tonight, those of you who haven't already, and read stuff written by T. Colin Campbell or the Physician's Committee for Responsive Medical Medicine. These issues are canvassed in, in quite good detail. Quite recently I had dinner with Muhammad Yunus after he won the Nobel Peace Prize. And roughly about the same time I was delivering a speech to a whole bunch of Indian entrepreneurs in New Delhi. And in the audience was Amartya Sen, who just won the Nobel in economics. And I discussed with these gentlemen the things that I discussed with everybody here, largely about the livestock industry in India. And I said that we know the problems with climate change. The Himalayan ice fields, icebergs up there, are correctly called the third pole because they feed half the world's population through the Indus, the Ganges, the Brahmaputra, through the Mekong, the Irrawaddy, the Yellow Rivers, and these icebergs are melting fast. I asked them what was their opinion, and they said, we agree with you 100%. These Nobel Pri- even Al Gore agreed with us. Now, these Nobel Prize winners have no argument with what rational people are saying about the livestock industry. But I get a lot of arguments from politicians who want to get re- re-elected at the next election. So I think that we need to, uh, com- people like us, good, decent people of, of, of integrity, have got to come together and say, there's a new world out there. We've got to behave differently. In human history, only 100 billion human beings have ever lived. Seven billion people are alive today. And we torture and kill two billion sentient, living, loving animals every week. We stab and suffocate one billion ocean animals every three hours. Ten thousand entire species are wiped out every year because of the actions of one species. And we now face the sixth mass extinction in cosmological history. If any other organism did this, a biologist would call it a bloody virus. So let's all come together. Let's not pick on specific industries. How can we work together to create a new environment, a new economic order that gives us health, wealth, strength and preserves our own sense of kindness, compassion, intelligence, affection. These things are important values. Then we can start talking about sustainability because then we would have deserved to become sustainable. Until, until then, then We don't actually deserve it.
6: Any comments on that? Well, just that uh, we did a lot of research, obviously, for the report, and the world-renowned dairy expert, John Webster, he talks about the cow as being the apocryphal overworked mother. Um, And he actually argues that in many instances it's almost impossible for the cow to eat enough to cover her own nutritional needs plus producing that amount of milk. And the only way it can be done is, firstly, by breeding a cow that's programmed for that, and, secondly, with um, supplementary feeding. And Philip's just talked about all the problems associated with... uh, well, some of the problems associated with that. So I I think... um, John Webster has shown that it's a problem for the cow, and it also means that the cow has a shorter life. I mean, it's it's going at maximum production for a much shorter period. So instead of a natural lifespan, a cow can live to 25 years, um, these cows generally uh, don't go beyond five years. They don't go into calf. They're sent off to be killed. So I think it is, it is a problem. And uh, I think it's a problem for the cow. I think it's a problem for the farmer because the farmer then has to buy all these expensive feeds. And it's a problem for the environment because those grains are being used in a very inefficient way.
3: Vicky, I understand that um, you've either seen firsthand or through some of your um, farming colleagues a cow who does produce 60 litres. And can you tell us about some of the welfare that you've witnessed, in particular, with the the ligaments around her Oh yeah.
5: So they, they they breed these cows to produce massive amounts of milk. Um, the problem, and this is why they have <coughs> part of the reason why they have a short lifespan, is that um, unless I mean they're obviously trying to breed the um, the ligament that that holds the, the bag together um, literally just just collapses, just breaks. So you have this cow, and, and we've had them in the past, we had the high-producing cows, and we were feeding them a amazing nutritional, you know. Mixes and and um, a lot of people did very well out of us and we we made we produced a lot of milk mm. but um, yeah it's oh, we we've, we've moved away from that and I wouldn't go back there again because it's it's not sustainable but um, so what yeah so what happens is is basically the, the this beautiful big udder that carries this massive amount of milk um, the ligament breaks and and then she's got this udder that's dragging on the ground and and then you basically they, well you just chop you chop her head off they chop her head off so. Mm. And um, that's why often these, these high-producing cows will only have a, um, probably a couple of, just a couple of lactations in the herd. A lot of the big farms, I've been told by people that work in them, that, um, that after two lactations, they're, they're out. So, um,
3: yeah, I so know, you've had a, a very strong response to... Well, it just
7: seems the problem is awareness, and it seems like most Australians, Americans, everyone in the world are... Picturing Vicky's farm as where your milk comes from, uh, Vicky's current farm, and it's amazing to hear words like "equipped" and uh, "nutritious feed." I mean, it's it's as if we're feeding a machine, not an animal, and it's this verbiage that's just treating us like an actual living, breathing, feeling, emotional being, as a product to get another product. And there's so many things to go into, but there's this great quote that man will always come up with a solution to tamper with nature to get what man wants. I mean, it is shocking to, to come up with solutions to combat problems to just produce this liter of milk. But it's amazing, you say, you know, this nutritious grain to feed these cows. What about the grain to feed the human? Just cut out the cow and just feed the human the grain. I mean, it's, it's amazing... Disconnect between human and animal and the fact that the animal is now treated like the piece of machinery that's used to milk it. I mean, it's, it's no longer an animal.
5: So, um, and that's consumer-driven. So um, I think there's got to be education um, and then consumer-driven and consumers um, have to be understand that, you know, the cheap milks, you, you, you can't have a, a, a good practice. Um, you know, you can't run the high stocking rates. We run a, a stocking rate of one cow to a hectare. A good farmer in my area will run four cows to a hectare, so um, we we can't comf- we can't um, produce a product for for what the the, the system's paying. It's not sustainable. So um, the consumer's got to got to drive it, um, and you and you will get it. And then you can. Um, I think you know. I'd love to see. I would love to see farms, dairy farms, growing for more food. You know, less cows. Cut the cows back. Um, if people obviously would. would I mean, the ultimate, your dream, and maybe that will happen in in the future. But um, I think the start, to start, the start would be to to let's cut the herds back. I know some beautiful farmers that milk very small herds, um, and they grow, you know, then they grow other other food products, and um, and they have and they and they feed, you know, communities, um, and they love their cows. You know, I'm talking about herds of 12 and 25 and 50 cows, like. That's, we don't need these big big thousand cow farms. These thousand cow farms, I mean, I mean, I've been doing a bit of research and talking to people because, I mean, I haven't been on one. And, you know, basically that cow, they say um, there's no time. If the cow goes down or anything, that's it. She's, she's dead. She's gone. No one has time to look, to look after them. I spoke to a neighbour of mine um, yesterday... He milks, I think he milks 50 cows, and um, you know he. And I actually, asked his opinion, but he said, "Vicky, I love my cows. I love my cows, and they live till 12, 15 years old. And um, you know, I, I work with him every day. I give him a pat on the back, and and you know, he's 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 what's going. Here's what's leaving the industry and what's taking over is, is farmers can't afford to buy these big farms, um, to buy farms, and, and and who could afford to buy a farm to milk 50 cows or 20 cows? So. Consumers have to understand that um, you 've got to pay more for the product and, and support the farmers I start asking the question we don 't have this in the milk in the, in, in the industry you can buy you know low fat two percent. You have all those choices, but you can 't go and say um, there 's not, nothing saying this, this milk has been produced by an ethical um, an ethical organic i mean I think i don 't know what um, what feels. Opinion on organics is, but I certainly think um, you know it's got to. Be, if you go down this path, you, organics are, um, uh, it has to be organic because if we if, if we want to save the planet, we can't. We've got to stop using chemicals. And I don't know what your opinion on GMOs, but that's another another <laughs> time and another topic. But um, and what we have found by by you know reducing all the chemicals and and um, you know reducing the stocking rates, we've got really healthy animals, and we're feeding people, and, and the people are healthy. So. Um, yeah, I think the tra- transition is consumer support, let's reduce the herd sizes and, and forget the industry, they're not interested they not, they're not interested, in, I'm sorry if anyone from Gerry Australia is here um, but I've tried to talk to you guys and you, you know, you're, you're not interested in, 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 in going this direction, you, you're looking at volumes and export markets and feeding masses and um, competing globally, you know, we're sending milk, we were sending milk to America we were going through a drought in 2006, 2007. We were sending milk to America and undercutting their farmers. And, and their farmers are going broke. Like, where's the logic in that? Yeah. It's psychopathic. Seriously. Yeah. You know, we should be doing that. They should, we should let them look after their, their communities and, and we should be looking after our farmers. And, and, and it's not by milking big herds because I know farmers that milk the 60-litre cows, they have the robotic dairies, They everything, you name it, and they're going broke
1: they going broke. And this edited item was brought to you courtesy of 3CR's Sunday 1pm show called Freedom of Species. Thank you to Philip Wallen and the panel from Voices. They are advocates for the reform of factory farming and the commercial kangaroo industry. And I hope you tune in to Freedom of Species on a Sunday because it has a lot of issues that cross over with the impacts on climate of animal agriculture.
8: You're listening to Beyond Zero Community Show. Uh, in the first half of our program, we heard Vivian speak with author Gaia Vince about her book Adventures in Anthropocene. In the second half, we heard Philip Wallen speaking at Rethinking Dairy. That was courteous of Freedom of Species, who we must thank, and held by Voiceless, an animal protection institute, who arranged the panel. Uh, we've got our... BZE Discussion Group coming up on the 5th of September at 6.30 till 8pm that's held at the University of Melbourne in the McCoy Building Uh, Fritzlow Theatre enter level 2, that's the corner of Algon and Swanson Street Carlton and speaking there you'll hear Dr Scott Watkins who will discuss the use of smart connecting lighting and other IOT-based technologies to control and monitor home operations, including solar and improve home energy efficiency. He'll also be joined by Dr. Scott Watkins, who has a PhD in chemistry and is former leader of printed solo cell research at the CSIRO. Uh... The recent victory for farmlands over coal mines made Karuna Down supporters very happy recently. The rich Liverpool plains have been spared because the New South Wales government bought back the license of a coal company. The farmers have blocked their land, gone to court and attracted large numbers of supporters in their nine-year residence to the mine. Uh, Check out Lock the Gates Alliance if you want to support farmers fighting off the coal and coal seam gas which are cooking the climate. Another climate victory was the incoming Northern Territory Government who announced a moratorium on fracking. This will protect a lot of grazing land and aquifer. It will also prevent all the greenhouse gases which are emitted by the gas industry. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on Beyond Zero Emissions tonight. I'd like to leave you with a song requested by Vivian that I've finally managed to find for her. This is David Rovick, New Orleans. Thank you once again for listening. You've been listening to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show on 3CR radio, that's 8.55 on your AM dial or... 3cr.org.au where you could stream the show. Thank you once again for joining us. I've been Andy. You've been listening to Vivian Langford. Good night. Mm-hmm.
0: Nobody knew that it could happen, the likelihood was clear, the future was coming, now it's here. They had to fix the levees, cause otherwise they'd break. On one side was the city, above it was the lake. It was in the daily papers, in bold letters was the writ. What would happen when the big one hit? But every year they cut the funding, just a little more, so they could give it to the army. To fight their oil war. National Geographic and the times picking in. They forecast the apocalypse, and it was coming soon. Preparations must be made, they said. Now is the time, it was years ago, they shouted. Inaction was a crime. They said the dikes must be improved and the wetlands must be seen. But Washington decided instead they should behave. Cause laws were more important than people's lives. So put some gold dust in your eyes and hope no storm arrives. New Orleans, New Orleans, New Orleans. Years and years of warning, no evacuation plan. It was just that the waters rose. Get out if you can. There were no buses, no one chartered any trains. There was no plan to rescue all of those who would. All the people with no money, all the people with no wheels, all of those who couldn't hotwire, one that they could steal. Thousands and thousands of people abandoned by the state, abandoned by their country, just left to meet their fate. New Orleans. Their houses dying on their roofs when people came to find them, they were turned back by the troops. They died there with no water, they died there in the heat. They were shot down by the soldiers for trying to find some food. Where the color of your skin determines what your life is worth. Where oil is the king, where global warming is ignored. Where the very end of life is the place we're heading towards. Where it's more than just a metaphor, the flooding of the dike. And if we don't stop this madness, the whole world will be like New Orleans. New Orleans. New Orleans. New Orleans.